We are about to talk to a local celebrity and fierce fighter for children and families. Join us today on Fostering the Future. Welcome to the Fostering the Future podcast, a show about all things child welfare, dependency, adoption, and foster care. Here are your hosts, veterans in the world of child welfare, Jack and Kat. We believe that every human has incredible and equal value regardless of what side of the courtroom we sit on. We hope that everyone feels welcome and accepted here on Fostering the Future. Make sure you follow us on Facebook or Instagram as Fostering the Future Podcast, or check us out on our website at fosteringthefuturepodcast.org. Judge Tepper, could you educate me on what Project One is? The National Council of Juvenile Family Court Judges has sponsored model courts around the country for various things. This was another one of their model court projects. They gave me technical assistance, which meant Project One is the one judge, one family, no wrong door, equal and coordinated access to justice, and with an overlay of trauma. They expected you to have collaboration with stakeholders. For instance, I'd have a meeting over lunch and invite people. I invited the Early Learning Coalition to join us. And when they first came, I remember the woman that came is now retired. And she said, I feel like I'm the little kid who made it to the big kid's table (laughs) at Thanksgiving. Nobody's ever asked me to participate. And they were critical, critical partner. Because when they learn things, then they would have people, they do train the trainers. And so that the Early Learning Centers weren't throwing kids out because they Mm -hmm. had tantrums. They were learning about the circle of security and detachment and meeting a child's needs. And during our stakeholders meetings, we might say, you know, what do we want to learn about next week? We did a presentation on the raising of America. You've heard a lot in the news these days about how far we are down in the industrialized nations for paid child care. This was a five part presentation where you learned about an impoverished, crime ridden area, paid child care, what you can do to the graduation rate, what you can do to the employment mm-hmm. rate, what you can do to the crime rate. And then they followed them for more than 25 years. And these children started graduating from college. The neighborhood was safe. The incomes rose. And so we did that in a presentation where I had attorneys do the presentation at the end to get participation from all of our community members on how we could change our community. I have the economic council participate in that and say, when you bring businesses to town, can you see why they can't consider doing an early learning center in their building and different things like that. So Project One encouraged that. Very importantly, did a, at the time we called them a trauma audit. The word audit is not a good word to use in particularly in the Native American cultures. And so we now call them trauma assessments. And they came and they met with with our parents that were in court. They observed court for several days. They met with case managers and met with attorneys. They met with the guardian ad litems. They met with the clerk's office. And by the way, my stakeholders included people from the clerk's office, people from the domestic violence center, people from Bay Area Legal Services. Everybody was participating that we could get. My chief of police would often come. The mayor would come. We were all learning together. Sometimes it might be a webinar on early childhood court. Sometimes it might be a webinar on fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Not me teaching it per se, but somebody that I knew that would 
would do it. When they did the trauma assessment, and I thought I knew so much. I mean, I'd been teaching domestic violence. I knew what I was doing. And then they took a look and they walked through the building, walk in the shoes of the families that are coming into your courthouse. I learned because I used to go to another courthouse sometimes for meetings and I was getting traumatized by the, the staff saying, you know better than to do that. You need to do that. And I'm and I'm not traumatized. <laughs> but they were traumatizing me. And so we have a very person-friendly but safety-positive courthouse and staff. And so they would walk through and see what it was like to be that person waiting for a domestic violence injunction or that person mm-hmm. waiting for a dependency hearing or delinquency hearing or whatever. They'd go up and look in the clerk's office to see where somebody seeking an injunction might be and where their antagonist might have followed them to intimidate them, et cetera, et cetera. And where is the bus stop? And all of that. And then talk to the people on how they felt they had been treated in court or the good, the bad, whatever. And they did extensive, we're talking, you know, in excess of 15 pages draft for me to look at. And I'm looking at it going, oh my goodness. For instance, in domestic violence injunctions, I'd always make sure that people weren't seated next to each other, that there was space between them. And I would make sure that they didn't leave the courtroom at the same time. But in dependency case where there's so much domestic violence, they'd be seated right next to yeah. each other. Yeah. <laughs> they'd be leaving at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Shame on me. So they came up with ideas. And I then walked the courthouse with somebody from the domestic violence center with somebody from the clerk's office with a bailiff to see what we could do to change it. And we completely changed things so that we were looking after the safety and there were safety protocols and there were many things that we did. So that was one of the things that they taught us. There were only six sites in the United States that were selected. And we then taught at other conferences on what we learned from our trauma assessments and how you could change things. I could have a team I could select that would go out to the National Judicial College, National Council, and we would get an education. And then we would also get a chance to teach others what we were learning. That happened several times over the years. It was all free to us. It was remarkable. And the outcomes were very positive. Of course, in my opinion, there's no reason every court that touches the life of a child shouldn't be a Project One judge. I was just thinking, I wish every single one of them was because I've experienced some of what you just talked about and some of the way that you ran your courtroom. I've never been in your courtroom, but I've experienced some of those things, but not all of them, not cohesively. I was spoiled really bad early on. And now I'm like... Like what? I didn't know what I was. I didn't know what I was missing. I mean, if you bring a kid into court over in the other county, you are getting looks. You are like, "What are you doing here?" With I am a temper foster parent. Like, <laughs> what do you mean? You don't want the kid up there? You're like, you don't have cookies for her? Like, I get healthy here. food. Oh, sorry. I get healthy. Food. That's true. That was I, true. And I no corn syrup. And we did healthy <laughs> snacks. We and protein based. And we also had condoms out that I got from the health department. And people just happily took them. In fact, one time I had them on my desk in chambers and I happened to be on duty. So I was asked to do a search warrant. And there was somebody from the feds that had come in with the prosecutor to get it. And he's looking at my table and there's condoms there. He goes, you have condoms? I go, yes. Did you want one? And how am I going to explain to my wife that the judge gave me condoms? This isn't a Project One court, but it is the whole idea of speaking to individuals candidly and openly. Years ago, I ended up on Crier and Company. She was a judge from Texas that ended up on CNN. Remember Norplant? 
Uh It's off the market now, but they would inject and it was good for five years. It would automatically have birth control go into the system. I had individuals who had, I mean, between the parents, they might have a 75 IQ in the hospital. Babies were falling and it was not good. And they had both been raised in foster care. And that was just an example of one where I said, well, she couldn't wait to have another baby after that baby was taken. And I said, what I want you to do is go to the health department and see the pros and cons of doing this. I didn't have them come back and report to me. I just wanted them to have a a choice. The ACLU was all over it and it was on TV talking about that. But she doesn't need to lose another baby. And we'd done all the services we could do. But the father of the baby was raised in a cage which was why he had been removed from his family. I didn't know what abuse she would have suffered. All I knew was that we did not want to remove her children, but we had no alternative. And fast forward, by the way, when those children turned 18, she came in saying, well, now can I have them? Because she just didn't fully comprehend what was going on. There's so many things that we can do just by trying to learn from what we do wrong and to help people. On the Project One, what was so helpful was being able to get other people educated with us that I thought would carry it through. Now, unfortunately, we still have a lot of education to do of judges in Florida and in other states, and that's why I find it now important to be bringing that trauma-informed approach of being patient, listening, making sure you recognize the trauma and self-care. If we can reach out to those who will be part of the system, we can truly make a difference. But otherwise, once somebody retires, that's it. And in the Project One assessment, that was one of the concerns is, so And when you leave, what happens? Can you tell us about the two for two books? Ah, the two for two books. I learned that through my connections with National Council of Juvenile Family Court Judges. A judge from Iowa, Judge Cohen, had started that program. And this went hand in hand years after I learned about how important attachment was and the uh, family time. We used to ignore babies and their parents forming an attachment Uh independency. Babies, they don't have memories. This is why you need to know science. That newborn who was removed from mom because of being drug exposed, next time they see mom in a once a month or once a week, they don't know who that is. (laughs) It's devastating for the mother. It's not good for the baby. And then it's viewed as, oh, see, this isn't going to work from the system. We learned that, number one, we needed to increase frequency. And Dr. Graham and I used to recommend up to daily visitation, letting them talk on the phone so they could hear the Mm -hmm. voice. Judge Cohen came up with a brilliant idea to give the caregiver the same book that the parents have. Parents would read that book to the baby during a a parenting time, a visit with baby in their lap, turning the pages, hearing the voice. And then it's not like calling your 10-year-old to talk on the phone. I would coordinate and make sure that they would be willing to do up to daily times for the parent to call or whoever placed the call to the caregiver mm-hmm. with their copy of the book and the baby. And they would have turned the pages with the baby in their lap as the parent read over the phone to them. That's wonderful. I don't know. Have you guys heard of the study where babies that are as young as five hours old show signs of depression, like diarrhea, excessive sleeping no. when they are separated from their parents at birth? Not that, but I do know that the attachment is critical. Mm-hmm. Just critical. And in fact, Dr. Graham helped teach me this, you know, in the days of crack. She was in Miami at the time. They go into the homes and they discover a baby in a box 
under the bed that wasn't crying. People always said, oh, it's such a good baby, never cries. No. <laughs> no. The never crying is a very bad sign, yeah. as you yeah. all know. Yeah. And that's because they gave up. It did no good to cry, so it doesn't surprise me that all those devastating Mm -hmm. negative impacts would Mm -hmm. start to occur very early on. This uh, 242 books kind of concept is so cool. I've never heard of it before. However, I had a baby in my care, and I had suggested to the parents that maybe we get some of the same toys. And this was during COVID, so visits were virtual. We had the same toys or the same books, and that's how we did visits because it was a baby. And that's so hard to do a virtual, you know, visit and keep the child's attention and not frustrate the parents uh, because the baby's not paying attention because it's a baby. But when we brought the same toys into the visits, so baby was playing with the toy, parents had the toy or the same books, the visits started going so much better. That was brilliant. And you know, the, you know, kids who are on the spectrum and even some adults Mm -hmm. will like quote movies they've seen over and over or books that they've read over and over and they use the memory of those things as a crutch when they don't have the words or they don't have the language they'll use that like echolalia as a crutch Mm -hmm. it's almost like a lateral move it's like an emotional crutch I recognize this this is familiar it feels stable it feels secure and you know you're almost like making a lateral move with attachment that makes a lot of sense that explanation I mean I don't know if it's right but It seems like it would be just provide the child with so much stability and structure, you know, because familiarity. When, yeah, when everything seems routines, so strange. That's why routines yeah. are important. Yeah, like, and it definitely seems like it'd make the adjustments from going back and forth you know, less difficult. Even in family court, I would suggest to the parents, particularly with young children, is you need to try to get on the same schedule, whether it's when they get up, when they eat, when they go mm-hmm. to bed. And so you're not further adding to the uh-huh. And it cuts down on anxiety because they know what right. to expect. How do you feel about the privatization of child welfare like we have in Florida? Because that happened while you were a judge, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. The privatization certainly appeared to be necessary. Understand at the time, shocking to me, the budget of DCF when they were doing everything before they started spreading money out to private entities, the court's budget at that time for an entire year would have run DCF for four days. How's that for a shock? Oh my gosh. Wow. Four days. Then you begin to wonder, well, wait a minute, this is just way too many things that they're doing. And that's when they started to break it. They also broke off elder affairs around during that time period. And that seemed to be a good idea. I was part of the transition. I was sitting in juvenile dependency court at the time privatization began. And we started out a little bumpy, but fine. It made sense. Even though I speak to and teach and go to other jurisdictions, I can't say I specifically know which ones are privatized and which aren't. So I can't comment on the quality in other states. I think that privatization can work. I have been critical openly for many years that there was not adequate control over the disparity in compensation. I was offended that one organization that was in charge of a section of the state, that that CEO would make much more than the president of the United States initially. The current situation that you might have been reading about in the papers, that didn't exist until recently. That only happened in the past administration on putting a cap. I was one of many voices, I believe, complaining bitterly. And there were newspaper articles about the outrageous compensation 
you know, on, in my opinion, on the backs of caseworkers and the potential outcome of children. Privatization, the positive part was then we definitely had funding that was given to an organization that was used then to pay for the services of the parents. That was not the case, you know, 40 years ago. So that was good. But getting them to let go of the money appropriately sometimes is sometimes a challenge, a, a push. Yes. I have argued for a long time that the frontline individuals in both dependency and delinquency need to be compensated like the professionals that they are. And that has never happened. I mean, I was blessed. I, I used to hear and see sometimes statistics of how other jurisdictions were doing in terms of longevity. We had people that would stay 25 years. Not anymore. Because you can make more working at Target, despite having perhaps a master's degree. And, and having and the lives of children. Or being at risk of being harmed and the hours and the stress. I mentioned to you the top 10 that we have in Florida being a trauma-informed jurisdiction. And one is self-care. And how do you self-care when you have too many kids on your caseload? That was the other problem in privatization. And of course, it was way out of whack when it was just DCF. There's supposed to be a number of individual youth that a case manager has, and they were constantly being ignored. They had too many... And isn't it now said that it's a number of cases, not number of kids? I don't know that specifically. I I believe so. It's my understanding that it is not the number of kids. It's the number of cases. And when you consider that some of these cases, like one of my kids is one of 12. Right. Right. So one case means mm-hmm. 12 kids in some of these situations. Right. That's, that's, I have a problem with that. And I don't think that bodes well for um, positive outcomes. So again, there was positives in privatization, but there needs to be some changes that are focused on those who deliver services. And I don't just mean case managers. We have individuals who are transporting youth, who I've seen superb individuals who are part of the solution and as a stable individual who has a relationship with a child. If we can't keep consistency there by paying them well, making them want to do their job and not having them because we don't have enough people running around at midnight to get a child who's just been released from some program. That's not that doesn't bode well for the future. No. Right. And so it's everybody who touches the life of a child, besides making sure that they are provided with trauma informed education and to know what trauma informed care means. They need to be compensated like the professionals that they are and have programs that would make them want to stay. And I do not pretend to know what the health care programs are, what the retirement programs are, but too many were leaving, too many were retiring Way too and going many. elsewhere. Mm-hmm. They still wanted to work with children. They just didn't want to do it this way. I think I hear that a lot, especially from family support workers. They have nowhere to go, but they have some of the longest standing relationships with the kids, with some of the kids yeah, because they're spending the and most. Especially when them. you've got like case managers who don't do the monthly visits, like they use an out of county case manager. Mm-hmm. A lot of kids like really don't know their case manager. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the family support worker that's not only with the kid, with the parent, when they're together, helping them with these relationships. Some of the people that I know that do that are absolutely incredible. Absolutely. And I don't I know agree. why they do it because, you know, we we, t- we we were talking to a case manager one time in here. And what we were discussing is the fact that this is the only job 
that I can think of where the harder you work, the more it benefits others instead of yourself. You know, it's not like there's really anything you can do in this field if you're going to continue working in the dependency system that's going to give you an outstanding salary. Certainly, most of them cannot support their families on those salaries. And we know a lot of them that have other second jobs. And I can't even imagine that knowing the hours they work in dependency. With all of the things that we've talked about, with With all the secondary trauma. Right. And yeah, yeah, the vicarious trauma is very powerful. I mean, I can remember many, many years ago just thinking this is hopeless. Why am I doing this? Until I learned that I needed to do one child at a time. But for them, they have such pressure put on them. You can't even stop to say I'm doing this one child at a time. And I know some of them because I've seen them off and on over the years as I would come in and out of the division. Their own children would wonder, are you going to make it to my game today? Are you going to make it to the play I'm in? Because they're helping other kids. Come first before me. Right. We can do better. We can do better. One of the things that we did yesterday at this conference that we went to is we set up this canvas and there were social workers and kids and foster parents and volunteers. And we just asked them to write a word on the board that means foster care. So I wanted to ask you, what is one word that you could think of that means foster care to you? Well, I see one of the words on that board that I often use when I teach, and that is grace. Giving somebody something that they seem to need the most at a time they seem to deserve it the least. And that may be a child in foster care. It may be that parent in court. It's not letting somebody skate. It's giving them grace. Yeah, I love that word. And it's a big one that I try and teach my kids. Every once in a while, I, I try and take an opportunity to to give them an example of grace. And, you know, they certainly <laughs> give me quite a few opportunities to give it. And I think that it's really important, especially as foster parents and really everyone involved in the system, that we offer that to these parents, knowing that their mistakes don't define them, that they're human and that That's they have right. value. Oftentimes, the reason they're in the situation they're in is because of a situation outside of their control, whether they were the victim of abuse and neglect or, you know, all of the things that we talk to these parents about. I find when you show them that you value them, that that really does help when we're trying to co-parent. One of the things our co-host, who's not here today, Matt, we wore her out yesterday at the conference, (laughs) but she is the biological parent to three girls that I fostered for a few years. And she's one of our co-hosts. And uh, one of the things that she's told me before is that when she saw that I saw value in her and trusted her, that that was something that gave her a change in her mindset and allowed her to accomplish things that she didn't think she could accomplish. One of the things she said to me, I remember she she had to go to inpatient rehab. There were two removals, unfortunately. And the first time the kids were removed, she had this mindset of, I'm going to do whatever I need to get the kids back, but not the mindset of, I'm going to change my life. And the second time the kids were removed, it was, okay, you can either go to inpatient or we're going to TPR. And she said, I'm going all in this time. And, And that's what she said to me. She said, I need to do more. I need to not just do what's needed. I need to be the parent that my kids deserve because I haven't been. I remember when she went into inpatient, she told me after she had made some great strides and been through, uh, the first thing was detox. And then she had been an inpatient for a while and she was really struggling because it was very difficult because it was triggering her. It was making her consider her trauma and, and not just don't do drugs. It's these are the reasons you're doing drugs. Let's take care of these reasons instead of just trying to punish you for what you're doing wrong. And having her self-examine and 
and think about the things that happened in her life that got her to this point was really difficult. And there were a lot of times where she would call me and be like, I'm leaving. I'm leaving tomorrow. I'm leaving tomorrow. And, you know, I would be like, well, if you leave tomorrow, I'm going to kick your ass because your girls need you. But no, you're not going to leave tomorrow. When we were having one of those conversations, she's like, I really just I need someone to tell me they're proud of me. Mm. I don't remember the word she used, but she was saying that she didn't feel worthy of somebody to feel that positive way about her. And and I had always felt proud of her, but I just didn't know she needed to hear hear it it. or that she cared what I thought. I'm just like her kid's foster parent. Like, why would she care about how I feel about her? But I had seen the changes she made. And, you know, the thing that she always says that always is what takes my breath away about her. And it was the first thing that made me go, "Okay, I'm going to fight for you and I'm going to stand with you. And she said, this was my fault. How often do you hear that? No, like most of the time when when a parent is in this situation, the first thing, especially when they're in the midst of addiction and all that, I'm here because so-and-so kicked me out of the house or so-and-so hurt my kid. It's always someone else's fault. But when she came at me with, this was my fault, I totally messed up. I'm in this horrible position and I need to change. And not just I need to change so I can get my kids back, but I need to change because I hurt my kids. You know, and I told her, "I, I am proud of you. You can do this. For whatever reason, like she cared about what I thought of her, but it set her on this path of being able to have her own self-confidence. It's important to understand that we have to look beneath the surface. Right. And although her saying this is my fault, we have to look beneath that as well, because what happened to her when she was growing up is not her fault. Our society has got to look at substance use disorder as that person's solution to an overwhelming problem, and it's become society's problem. Right. And Dr. Folletti explains it that way. Yeah. I mean, it helped them cope because they were being molested or they were being beaten or they didn't have... It was their self-medication it, for the that's trauma. What we tend to, that's yes. what we tend to say, but it is their solution. When you take away their solution, then they're exposed to the rawness of what the negative things that they went through. So that's why we have to help them heal. There's been a study that shows that hope is the single best predictor of a life well-lived. We started studying what it takes to become resilient. We can't change somebody's past. Right. I can't undo it. I can help you heal through the right therapist, through encouragement and positive messages from those that matter to them, like a foster parent or the judge or whoever, there may be their boss. When we can give them hope that the future can be different, a study was done in California, Dr. Chen Hellman and uh, Casey Gwen, who used to be the elected prosecutor in San Diego, did a study. They have camps in the summer called Camp Hope. Instead of regular camp counselors, they have therapists. And children who may or may not be in the system are invited and they work with them. And then they did follow up studies on them. They've been doing this for a number of years and giving them hope is the best predictor of a life well lived. As simple as that sounds, giving somebody hope that there can be change is easy to do. We just have to say it, whether you're the foster parent and you're giving these children hope, you're giving that mother hope that she's going to make it out of there, even if you have to kick her. Yeah. That she can do this. Yeah. And giving hope that there can be a different life, whether it's because I'm how I'm speaking in court or because I'm going to the detention center and I help teach 
the juveniles and tell them that this is not your future. Right. This is not your future. Your future can be very different. And we talk about what it would take to change their future, despite what they've done, despite how they lived, despite what's happened to them. If you could add a training to the foster parent curriculum, what would you add? Oh, and by the way, I took that training. (laughs) I took the training about 25 years ago. So was it MAPS then? Yes, it was. Okay. I would definitely add adverse childhood experiences and the impact of trauma. Um, uh, circle of security. Circle of security. <laughs> <laughs> the circle of security. They need to understand what children need to be able to explore so that their brain can grow and what they, the consistency they need to be able to look back for encouragement and somebody to rescue them, so to speak, or keep them safe when they're about to fall and to cheer them and to celebrate them when they succeed. That's the circle of security. That definitely should be part of it. And in addition, I think it's important that we teach about the science of attachment, but also how it's not us versus them. Way back when, when I was an attorney, it seemed that the parents always viewed the foster parents as the bad guy that wanted right. to take mm-hmm. their children. And sometimes they still do. <laughs> but Definitely. we need to change that. And foster parents, I was very dismayed. I had been teaching in West Pasco to the Foster Parents Association periodically about family time and the importance of it and being creative and bonding and attachment. And I had did far more parenting time mandated than other yes, judges did. You are known for that. <laughs> and, and I had um, somebody from the Foster Parents Association when I was back to teach again. By this time, I was teaching ACES. But before I began, she said, you're going to have to tell me how I explain to these parents why they have to do so much visitation. And I was horrified. <laughs> that should be taught as part of the MAP class, that this is a positive. If you care about these children, regardless of where their final home is, you need to be sure that they have a positive attachment. Even though it's an unhealthy attachment, we can't just break attachments. We have to try to nurture them. I also wish people knew biological parents, foster parents understood that me as a foster parent, I am attaching to this child so that they can attach in a healthy, positive way. No, (laughs) I am trying to teach that child. I'm giving... It's the only gift I can give this kid, honestly. And responsive, healthy relationships. Yes. They now know are the key to buffering toxic stress. And building resiliency and healing Exactly. And it may be a foster parent, obviously, is in a very powerful position to be that nurturing, responsive. It's responsive is the key even more so than nurturing. But it could be that teacher. It could be the coach. It could be the aunt that they still have a relationship with. You never know who that could be. That's so critical. We need to be teaching that in MAP class, but as judges, we can also, in part of our dialogue, explain to the parents that they need to partner with the caregiver, not to be at odds with them. It's not a possession we're talking about. We're not arguing over who wins. Because we really want the parents to win. Right. Like we really I, do. Yes, we we really want these do. kids to go home. I think one of the good things about my first case being in ECC was that icebreaker meeting. It was very intimidating for me to be a new foster parent and not really knowing what was going on and not really knowing what ECC was. You mean early childhood court? Yes. Mm-hmm. The early childhood court coordinator that was here basically really led that meeting into a place where I went from someone who was intimidated and nervous. And as a foster parent, especially in the beginning, you're like, 
I've got their kids and I don't want them to think that I look down on them or judge them for what they've done. But I'm also kind of nervous because I don't know them. What do they think about how I'm parenting their kid? And if it were me standing there, I'd be like, why do you get to parent my kid and I don't? Why do you think you're so great? And so all, all of these anxieties are going through you. But the way that the early childhood court icebreaker meeting went really built a great foundation with these parents that I don't know how I would have been able to connect with them if there wasn't that introduction. It was, you know, it was casual. I don't know if somebody had suggested the idea or I had read about it somewhere, but I brought pictures of the kids that I had taken since they had been in my home to them and brought copies for each parent because they were separate because there was a no contact at that point in time. And when I handed the pictures over to this guy who looked like he was annoyed and didn't look like he was going to like me, I handed him the pictures of his little kids and his whole face changed and he started Mm. crying. He had to take some time to like get it together. And I was like, I just want you to know I haven't had them for very long, but they're incredible and they're such sweet little kids and I'm going to do everything I can to help them for you. And the coordinator walked us through and they told me their likes and their dislikes. And these parents just critical. It is absolutely critical for all sides. Absolutely critical. You, yes. That's spot on. You definitely know, never had that happen. <laughs> You've got to be an ECC. I'm telling you. <laughs> it's me it's just a different going animal. to the parents and always being like, okay, give me their phone number. I'm going to call them. We are going to be you know, besties, besties. (laughs) And I'm going to help them. And I have all these resources that I can give them and I can tell them all these things. And, you know, it doesn't always go that way. (laughs) The coordinator guided these parents in answering questions about their kids. And who doesn't like talking about your kids? I mean, I know I do. So these parents just light up when they talk about their kids, regardless of what type of situation was in the house. They love their kids. They know their kids well. And it's not focusing on what you did wrong. Right. Share with me your knowledge yeah respecting their knowledge of their child i definitely think that that that's why i mean we need the ecc model everywhere i mean florida has adopted and we're in 27 jurisdictions i think 27 counties maybe i can't keep track i just don't understand why all dependency doesn't run like that shouldn't we care about all the cases and all the kids and i think same principles should apply yes i was in your courtroom for a training you brought a judge in from i want to say jacksonville yeah he spoke about was it chronography the study of time probably i know which judge you're talking about he is the master at making sure that we can take care of children as quickly but as safely and the best way we can getting them to permanency is one of the things that he does the the amount of time that it takes to get a kid to permanency Mm -hmm. and actually i got the link from roxanne afterwards and i have sent it to people i've sent Mm -hmm. it to case managers i have sent it to therapists and all i didn't send it to you send it to me i will send it to you today (laughs) um i have it saved my favorites this training because I learned so much Mm -hmm. but also the things that he's doing like we just should all be doing that and having court every month like you do with early childhood court and some of the Mm -hmm. other specialized courts is vital for these kids because if you wait three four five six months they're still in this state of anxiety of not knowing what their future holds of not knowing when they're going to get to go home to see their parents or if they're going to go home to see their parents and we all know that there are often times where you go to court 
you wait three, four months to go to court. You walk in. Guess what? Someone didn't file a paper. We have to reschedule. Which oh, is absurd. Which is insane. And, and then if you have to schedule for three more months out, that's why you've got kids in care for five or six right, years right. because you got at least a year of reschedule. That should never happen. You can't get to this, oh, at nine months, we're going to start talking about permanency, that's whatever that permanency why is. Why concurrent planning means from the moment, and it was shocking to them when we started applying that in our jurisdiction to talk about it. Because at first it's like, man, this is going to be tough. We're just sheltering their children and we're talking about concurrent planning. Right. My bailiff, who, by the way, not a bailiff any longer, and she was a foster parent in a different county, later adopted. So she really had an eye on on the children. And she would watch the response physically of the parents when I was explaining, okay, this is what we're doing. Our goal is to return the children to you. But I need you to know we're going to be working simultaneously. And I'd explain about that it could be a termination of parental rights placement with long-term relative care. She said you could just see them begin to relax because they understood the goal was reunification and we can get there, but we know there's another goal so that everybody also knows we can't wait six months to get to this. It matters if we are moving forward with them to encourage them and to be open and to be there, whether it's every month or as needed instead of these big gaps and letting nitpicking things like who failed to sign this or send this paper off. That's unacceptable. Agreed. Agreed. Maybe this is ignorant, but I don't understand why sometimes those things can't happen right there and then in that moment. Good point. We had in my courtroom, we had a big book that the state and the privatization unit had created. They could take it, have the parents sign what was needed to release. We could sign that. We could give this, do this. And then there's no lag. Right. For me, professionally in civil court, that's what we do. If the judge says, oh, I don't see this. You get it. Your Honor, I have my laptop. Can we take a five minute recess? and And we do it right then and there. The training that she was referring to, one of the things the judge said is all of those things that could cause delays, he tried to find solutions for. Like, what is something that causes probably the most delays? Fingerprints, right? Fingerprints. So he (laughs) brought a fingerprint machine into the courthouse. Oh, how cool. And, okay, everything is done, but we can't send these kids home because we need fingerprints. Okay, let's take a break. We're going to go in the other room and do fingerprints. We'll come back and read. Like, why can't we find solutions like that so kids aren't, aren't waiting in care. I had kids that were set to reunify and it was, I want to say a month and a half, two months until the end of the school year. And the judge wanted to wait till the end of the school year. And I was like, they don't care about their school year. Education's important. However, I had talked to the school and set it up so they could finish their education remotely. Keep in mind, these kids had only been, because of COVID, they had only been in the classroom for a couple months at this point. Mm. And I'm like, we're delaying reunification due to, and I actually spoke up. Were you given a voice? I did speak up. I wasn't given a voice. I took one. And, Good for you. And I explained to him that I had already set up with the school that they could finish up the school remotely. Some of the kids were still doing remote in the classroom. So they were already set up for that. All they would have to do is switch back to how they were doing it a couple mm-hmm. of months ago. And he said, well, I don't want them to not be with their friends. And they didn't give me another opportunity to speak, but they could give a crap about their friends that they met a month ago. They want to be with their mom. They want to be with their grandmother. 
together. Me and this parent co-parent so much that like we really spent a lot of time together. But the permanency of them living with them and knowing that their mom had done what she had set out to do was a big difference. So we didn't actually get to reunify until the last day of school. And, you know, we did what we could with it. But the judge basically implied that if you don't want your kids to be able to finish out the school with your with their friends, then maybe you haven't come as far as I thought you have. And I was like crushed. I wasn't given another opportunity to speak because they knew that I was trying to and they kept (laughs) cutting me off. That was a disservice to those kids. Those girls were very attached to their mom. There was like she had been clean for two years. They kept delaying every little thing as far as the reunification went. So when they said that they wanted the kids to be able to spend more time with their friends instead of being home, I will always say that the biggest problem I see in the system, like the system's broken. We all know that there's so many things that need to be fixed. In my opinion, the biggest problem is kids languishing in care. You know, you don't think it's a big deal for it to be two or three years instead of a year. But then by the time those two or three years have passed, the trauma that kid has had from not having permanency has made them a different kid. Yes. I mean, talk to me about any of the kids in my home and I will tell you the difference between when they came into care when they left and whether that's in a different foster home or my foster home, the lack of permanency has an effect. Absolutely. And, and, and the separation from their caregivers and those primary attachments has an effect. And then if you wait three, four, five six years to TPR the child, then you're looking for an adoptive home for maybe a 10-year-old instead of a 5-year-old. Or maybe a 15-year-old. Florida used to get penalized financially because they didn't get children to permanency consistent with the the federal act. This five years should not be happening today. Absolutely no reason it should be happening. I know for me, I, I see it. All a the time. Lot, a and, lot. and you see I, these older kids who are looking for adoptive homes. Yeah. And the reason they're looking for adoptive homes is because it took five years to TPR them. I'm engaged with a teen, not my almost adopted kiddo, mm-hmm. but another one. And he is 14 and a half. And he is trying to figure out if it doesn't work out with dad, what am I going to do? Like, can I can I come live with you? What am I going to do? He is 14 and a half. And he's trying he to figure it himself. He's trying to figure it out. Because nobody's own, advocating for him. Because nobody's advocating for him. Which is so insane. Is he moving in? And he should be in court <laughs> telling a judge that if somebody would have the kids come in as they are supposed to, they are presumed right. to be a participant in the proceedings. Recently, I was in court and in front of a wonderful magistrate um, who had wanted to hear from mom's case manager, state attorney, and then immediately turned to me and asked me to speak. I always take my opportunity to speak. I am polite. I am respectful, but I speak up. And here, I didn't even have to find an opportunity. She immediately turned to me. It was the best court hearing I've ever had because I advocated for the parents. And this is not a child who's been in my home for very long. But to me, it just looked like they were ready to reunify. They have done what they needed to do. Like, why are we delayed here? So I spoke up. Magistrate agreed. She gave options all the way up through reunification. And at the very end, she asked if I wanted to speak again. And I asked, I know, I asked if she could order that the staffing that was to occur the following day proceed because I was very worried. They'd cancel it. They'd cancel it because we had a good hearing. She ordered it. The staffing, they were trying to figure everything out, transition. And I was like, oh, can we just do a transition plan right now? We're all here. Let's get this done. And not wait three more months for the next And that's what they were trying to do. I was like, we are getting a transition plan. We are hitting a reunification date. There's no reason not to. There was no reason not to. And you know what? 
We still did it in like 20 minutes. I tried as much as I could to say, when this happens, we do this. We have alternatives, but we don't have maybes or ifs or when are we going to get back together to talk about or have a staffing. That used to be an issue. What do you miss most about being on the bench? The interactions with children and to see the transformations of parents that finally could heal from what happened to them and have more hope than fear and to have begun to make a life for themselves and often for their children. Sometimes they don't make a life for their children, but they've made a life that they're not returning to the system again and again. So I miss seeing those transformations, both of the youth and the parents. I do. I recall another thing that was different about your courtroom was the celebration for parents as they reunified. Any other courtroom, a parent is reunified. It's said plainly. Everybody walks out of the room. So I remember one reunification. I was like, did they reunify or not? I couldn't really tell. They were like, the voice was muffled. And, Uh. you know, sometimes it has to be clarified. But in your courtroom, I remember people like clapping and standing up and tears like it was such a positive celebratory experience that really these parents deserve like they work so hard to get their kids back and especially when they make real transformation in their life like we need to celebrate that more like we're out here celebrating adoptions we need to be celebrating these reunifications absolutely just as loudly if not louder because that is the goal and that's what is best for these kids if they can safely go home and that bond doesn't have to tear forever I've always enjoyed the adoption days, but I really love the reunification celebrations that we started doing a few years ago. It matters that somebody that has overcome such difficulty with such odds gets a positive response from all of us. It sends a very positive message to the parents that may still be sitting in the audience ready to start a case and to the children that may be in court. And just so you know, there are problem solving courts like the early childhood court really make a difference. They try very hard to celebrate the positive. And there are many superb judges around the state that indeed do that in their courtroom every day. And one of the things that bio parents tell us a lot is how they feel like nobody is ever cheering them on. They're like, the case manager isn't cheering me on. They're just telling me what to do. And I'm like, I get that. Like, I I understand that that job isn't like necessarily to be a cheerleader, but why not? We're going to get way more of a positive movements forward with these parents if they feel like they've really accomplished something, because a lot of the times they really do accomplish things, but nobody's telling them they accomplished it. So they kind of feel like, well, I guess that wasn't that big of a deal. In early childhood court, I can remember when our child parents psychotherapist was in court with the parents, I would ask the parents, so tell me what you've been doing, what you've learned. And they'd start talking and talking. And the therapist was speechless. And at the end, she goes, I had no idea. I had no idea they had learned all, you know, all of this. This is fantastic. And to get that one, it reinstills that they know it when they have to tell it. Yes. Well, any of us do that. Yes, of course. But then for the very therapist to say, yes, you've got it. You've got it. Yes. <laughs> and it reaffirms for her that she's teaching, teaching it in teaching a way. It, well. yes. it was very exciting always to see that. Or for her or I to be watching the interaction between the child and the parent. And she would often, because we had babes in arms and somebody might start crying or doing this or that. And then she would watch and see how they were soothing them. And then she'd say, I just wanted to go ahead and commend you. But what you did is exactly what you should be doing. Yeah. Now, how about that? And to be doing it on this public forum, you yeah. know, way to go. Because we oh, sure yeah. do tell them what they're doing wrong immediately. Publicly. Yep. And immediately. <laughs> publicly. Yes. Yeah. So, so. We, that's why, you know, again, one of the theories is we need to catch people doing something right. 
Thank you so much for joining us today. Make sure you subscribe and follow us on social. We hope that you join us again next time and keep on fostering the future.